2: Before Abraham Lincoln was born in 1809. Benito Juarez was born in Mexico, Oaxaca, Mexico, a town not far from Mexico City. And at just about the same time, both would become presidents of their respective countries. And they would both be considered politically, perhaps on the social politics side, liberal. Juarez, who was Mexico's first president of indigenous blood took over as a result of a civil war in Mexico between conservatives and liberal, a conflict that really had dogged the nation since its independence in 1820, and through the troubles in Texas, the annexation of Texas by America, and the Mexican war defeat. In 1861, Juarez is elected president, but the war that had damaged Mexico's infrastructure crippled its economy, took its toll. Plus, he had to give amnesty to captured conservatives that he had fought against who were still resisting his government, who had executed some of his generals and friends. He established a rural police force the rallies who were sometimes under his control and sometimes not. It was an ugly civil war, and some of the people who had rallied to Juarez's side were little more than bandits who during the war sided with the liberal cause and after the war sought jobs from the government and, in some cases, went back to being guerrillas and bandits again. Would it be that his only problems were domestic? But in 1862, the French, seeing the United States tied up in a civil war between North and South and actually thinking about getting involved in that war, decide to make a foray into Mexico. Now, one of the issues is that Juarez, with his government's economic problems and inability to tax properly, cannot make payments to England France and Spain and these countries end up blocking the port at Veracruz and yes, throughout Mexico's history that port of Veracruz is is very often taken, it's going to be taken by Americans at least twice in its history this is to collect customs and enforce the obligations of the country to them But Britain and and Spain quickly see that France has other ideas. They want to do a little more than just trying to get their money back. That's owed to them. And they get out. They want no part of it. France wants to intervene directly in Mexico. They send a force. And at the Battle of Puebla, they are defeated. The date is the 5th of May. And you know it as Cinco de Mayo. A day that celebrated in Mexican history a great victory over a large French army. The trouble is, France sent more troops after Puebla, and they conquered the country and occupied Mexico City. And they installed an Austrian Archduke, Maximilian, who could speak no Spanish whatsoever, and who seemed mostly interested in decorating the the castle at Chapultepec. And making it a grand palace. He was backed by the president and dictator of France, Louis Napoleon, sometimes called Napoleon III, um, step grandson to Napoleon. And with the Mexic- the support of the Mexican conservatives who had opposed Juarez in the first civil war. Juarez is forced to flee. His wife goes to the United States and stays in New York. And several times she's visited by Abraham Lincoln. Though Benito Juarez and Abraham Lincoln would never communicate directly. Politically, they were of like minds. Lincoln very much wanted the French to leave but could not enforce it during a civil war. So for some years, the French control Mexico. Now, I think it's an important story to understand, you know, to put that in context, because we're going to talk more about Mexico on this episode. And it's a special episode that I did in Cancun with the guys from the road to now, Dr. Benjamin Sawyer of Middle Tennessee State University and Bob Crawford, who is a bassist for the Avit brothers, and they are... The host of Road to Now podcasts and other history podcasts, which is a really good one. You should, you should subscribe to. We're going to talk a lot about Mexico, and we're going to talk about this story of uh, Benito Juarez. And unfortunately, although the Mexicans are eventually successful after our own civil war in 1867 in driving the French out of Mexico, and they put Maximilian to. A death squad. It's not Juarez's preference to do it. But a signal has to be sent, an important signal of enforcement of the Monroe Doctrine was sent that it's very dangerous to intervene in countries in this hemisphere as a European colony. We don't want any more of it. We have our independence, we threw off the yoke of Spain. And That's it. So it was an important stand done by Mexico that doesn't get a lot of acknowledgement. There's some help from the United States. Andrew Johnson, he can't get Congress to support a force entering Mexico. they just getting out of the Civil War. They don't want another war. But he had the Army lose some supplies near the border with Mexico. And uh, so sends uh, Philip Sheraton down there to make a statement. French troops are also facing trouble with Prussia. That's going to lead to the Franco-Prussian War in 1870. You can see these events coming together. They need to bring troops back home, and they abandon it. And Mexico is once again free, unfortunately for Juarez. And this is something that I, I didn't get right in the, in the program that we're about to, to listen to. But unfortunately for Juarez, he has a heart attack and dies in 1872. And one of his key generals, Porfirio Diaz, takes over the country. From 1876 to 1911, Diaz is going to be the dictator of Mexico. And even though he's the dictator of Mexico and caused a lot of problems for the average people, he is the author of the, quote, Mexico, so far from God, so close to the United States. That seems to be the history of of Mexico. Again, the program you're about to listen to was recorded live in the Riviera Maya. That's in between Cancun and Tulum down in Mexico. I was honored to be a guest on the Road to Now program. We make so many good points. I did catch myself in one error, saying that Diaz had overthrown WARS. That wasn't true. Diaz took over after WARS's death. But nonetheless, he was a general who had largely betrayed his ideals. And we talk a lot about uh, the history of Mexico and America. So give it a listen. I'm going to run the Road to Now program as they aired it uh, last week.
3: Good afternoon. You know, this is a uh, interesting place to talk about mid 19th century American history. Uh, You know, but hey, this is beautiful. We're here at the uh, Avit at the Beach Festival. Uh, I'm Bob Crawford, as always, with my co-host, Dr. Ben Sawyer. How's it going, everybody? We're here at a lagoon because we're recording this for the podcast, so, so I just want to describe the scene. <laughs> you have a lot of really happy people.
0: All happy. All happy. Uh,
3: some of them may have been drinking since about 11 o'clock this morning. Some of them maybe not. Maybe just getting started. It's going to be a long day. And, uh, but there is a, you know, a, a nice pool, like almost like a lagoon swimming pool between us and some of the crowd. A lot of people are in the water. Can we get closer? Does anybody want to come closer? Come on. Come closer. Uh, I may go down there in a minute myself. We have uh, some zip lines going back and forth. Um, But really, just a real festive, uh, just a beautiful day here uh, in... Is it Tulum? Are we in Tulum proper? Tulum? We're right outside of Tulum, Mexico,
0: and we're all happy to be here. And thanks for being here. This is awesome. I gotta say, I I do a lot of talking about history. It's not usually in front of a lagoon. Uh, So this is great.
3: (laughs) Okay, so we wanted to bring a real special guest uh, here for all you guys and there's a guy who has a, a podcast called My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. I, I went to college with him. Uh, he and I went to college together at the Richard Stockton College of New Jersey, which is, which is now Stockton University. Thank you so much. Some fans in the audience. Yes, uh, it's in the Pine Barrens of South Jersey. Uh, it is a state school. Uh, just to let you know, it's uh, accredited in case you had any <laughs> questions. We'd like to bring out our guest today. Bruce Carlson. Thank
0: you. Thank you.
2: It's great to be in Cincinnati. I'm sorry.
3: So, Bruce, again, his show is incredible. It is, it is my favorite podcast. And uh, what's interesting about Bruce is that he's been doing podcasts for over 10 years. He started doing, doing it when no one else was doing
2: it. We actually had to use a tin can, and, uh, but, you know, it's hard to build audience, but things have gotten better, you know, since then.
3: Yeah, it's gotten to the point where, I mean, really, any of us could have our own show. I mean, even a couple schmoes like uh, Ben and I.
0: Anybody, really. Anybody could.
3: So we thought a good topic for today would be United States-Mexican relations through history. What do you guys think?
0: Just randomly drew that one, randomly.
3: We actually, uh, yeah, we had five and a hat, and that's the one we picked. <laughs> Uh, and I, I thought it'd be interesting to uh, look at a, f- a couple current statistics, okay? Mexico is the United States' second largest export partner after Canada, third largest trading partner after Canada and Mexico. Mexico is currently our third largest largest goods trading partner with an estimated $525.1 billion in two-way goods traded during 2016. <laughs> um, Mexico invests. Mexican business businesses invest $17.6 billion into the United States stock market, okay? That's a, a growth of over 35% in the past five years, and they're the seventh fastest-growing investor in the United States stock market. One, one more stat. I don't want to uh, bog us down here. Uh, Mexicans, as of recently, 2016, according to Pew Research, have a 65 percent negative opinion of the United States. There goes the zip line. 65 percent uh, negative opinion of the United States, which has gone up 35 percent since the election of Donald Trump. Donald Trump has a 95 percent disapproval rating in Mexico. Just so you know. <laughs> so you know. And Whether as I can...
0: said, where is that five percent? That's just like he's killing it right now. <laughs> right? Like, <I> don't... <laughs> Good point, Ben.
2: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, go ahead, Bruce. Oh, I mean, uh, it's just great to be here. We have a lizard is, is among the audience uh, over there listening intently. Literally That's a first. Watching. Uh, first time doing a podcast with Zip Lines and uh, with a great audience by the pool. I think it's it's just the stats that you mentioned. You know, that was $17 billion going into the United States, and it's, it's something that that people forget, and as we're all here at, at Cancun uh, i think it's a it's just a good time to, to to have a reminder of how tightly our countries are interwoven and this is a resort where you're going to have a good fun good time you are also helping mexico mexico's sharing a good resource that it has its wonderful uh, coastline with uh, americans and this is a resort that was designed in the 70s to Accommodate uh, American tourism. They even changed their time zone so that it would be easier for Americans to work with. So, it's just a good time to talk about the two nations and you know the closeness that we could and should have and might have, regardless of what we do. I think I think will always be Mexico and the United States will always be close, no matter what each side feels about it.
3: Yeah, w- uh, wonderful. Mexico has wonderful natural resources, but they also have wonderful people everybody i've met here from here everyone at the hotel and every at the airport i mean everyone i've met in mexico has been so kind and accommodating and it's just it's wonderful
0: it is it's a nice reminder sometimes you go places and you're like well the, the favorability rating of the united states is really low but then you realize they don't judge the people they they think about the country itself and the people separately and i think that's a beautiful thing we should we should all remember you know yeah um I think it, we wanted to talk about the history of this relationship, because sometimes uh, we, we forget that maybe there are lots of reasons why maybe Mexico should be skeptical of us sometimes. And so we're going to start off just kind of taking back to the beginning of the U.S.-Mexico relationship. Um, so in 19, or say 1810, uh, Mexico begins its war for independence, and in 1821, Mexico... Gains independence from Spain, and this is part of a greater revolution that's going on within the Spanish uh, colonial world in the Western Hemisphere. In 1821, they get independent, but the, the majority of the population of Mexico is, is in the south, where Mexico City is. So they have these, these lands in the north, which are today Texas, New Mexico, California, very sparsely populated. So the Mexican government begins thinking about ways. How can we bring people to that region and develop the tax base there and, and build a place that can be a great tie between the American economy and the new Mexican economy? And as it turns out, in the 18, early 1820s, there's no better way to make a ton of money than off of growing cotton. So the Mexican government works with recruiters from the areas that is Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, to bring in folks who are going to set up and begin producing for that economy. Well, if you're making cotton in the 1820s, and you're from Louisiana and Mississippi, when you bring your farming, you're also going to bring what? You're going to bring slavery, right? So they do this, this. And this area becomes very, very wealthy very quickly. Now, the problem is that, I don't know if you have read many uh, textbooks or know much about history, but there's a, a, a similar thing that seems to happen whenever European colonists show up in a portion of the world that's not theirs. And that is that it generally becomes theirs. And so in this period when they bring these folks in, there's immediately conflicts by the, by the settlers who come from, the, from the, the southern states into this area. And so there's conflicts. And in 1829, Mexico banned slavery. And guess what? The people from the United States who are coming over, don't listen. There she goes. There she goes. Another lucky winner. Another lucky winner. So, so in 1829, <laughs> Mexico banned slavery. Americans don't listen. So in 1830, and I want you to listen to this. In 1830, Mexico closes its borders and prohibits Americans from coming to Mexico. <laughs> And the Americans don't listen and keep crossing the borders. Let me repeat. <laughs> in
1: 1830,
0: Mexico closed its borders. Americans don't listen and keep coming. It's, it's almost like if you know history, uh, you know, it's not all one side. But uh, anyway, after this, these years, there's conflict. But in 1835, this guy Santa Ana takes over, kind of takes over the government. Texas sees its opportunity. They proclaim independence. And after a year-long war, and yeah, I'm going to skip the Alamo, but we all remember the Alamo. Sorry. <laughs> 1836, they catch Santa Ana, and the, and the Texans make him sign a document saying uh, that Texas is independent. Now, I don't know if you know about, much about politics, but that's not how it works. Like, you can't put Donald Trump in a headlock and make him give you Massachusetts, right? That gets back to Congress, and they're going to be like, N-. I would try. <laughs> I would, yeah, I mean, it might be worth maybe Rhode Island. Can I pro- take North Carolina? <laughs> he would probably give you Massachusetts, honestly. So, so anyway, he signs it over. The Texans say, great, we're independent. Mexican government says, uh, no, that's not how it works. You're not at all. But then the Texans just ignore it. They then try to start talking about, shout out to the zip line again. <laughs> Texans begin petitioning to come into the United States. But here's the thing. Andrew Jackson's like, I don't know. That's a lot of baggage you're bringing with you. Since Mexico says you're not independent at all. And so after this period, there's a period of about 10 years where there's a Texas Republic And people in the United States start thinking, I think everything's ours, so that includes Texas. So how, guys, then I'll pass this over, how do we settle this problem and make Texas the state that it is today?
2: Well, I think one good way to look at the conflict would be to take a look at these two zip lines. And so if you figure that one zip line is the Nueces River, that one on the bottom, and the one on the top is the Rio Grande, and the crux of the disagreement between Texas and Mexico, which translated into the disagreement between Texas and the United States, is where Texas ended. At least that was one of the, the disagreements. There are many border scuffles and other uh, claims uh, that, that occurred. Now, it, it, to, to the agreement that, that you uh, discussed when they got Santa Ana captured and they they uh, made the initial deal that created the independent Republic of Texas, which Mexico is still at this time not recognizing has not never recognized in its entire history as a republic, which was a ten year period and, and actually a more interesting one for another day. Uh, that agreement said that te- that from Texas started at the Rio Grande River, the Mexican government believed that as, as a province of Texas, which is still considered it own, it began at the Nueces River or the, or the Nutty River. Here comes someone
3: down the Rio Grande right now! <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> so that line in between the two zip lines, you can consider the disputed area of uh, of Texas. Now, Texas has a history as a republic. It actually, Sam Houston is president for a time. It's, you know... One of the things I think is important to point out is that Texas could have been and could have stayed a a republic. That was a distinct possibility. James Madison, as a a president, thought that really the country, uh, the United States, would be settled by several different countries, not necessarily a United States all the way across. But, of course, it's also that idea of manifest destiny, and those two things were in conflict.
0: Bruce, I've got to say, anyone who knows anyone from Texas has heard that they could have been an independent republic at least once or twice.
2: <laughs> I,
3: I think they've been thinking about it in the past <laughs> ten years.
2: But yeah, it's, it's become more uh, more of an issue. And they had relationships where they had councils in uh, France and councils in London. They had representatives. They acted as a country. And it came awfully close. Sam Houston, when he got annoyed with the United States not, not annexing... Texas quickly enough, you know, started trying to make some noises that, hey, we can be independent. And then the president, uh, after one of his many uh, several terms that Houston took, Hanson Jones, actually uh, developed a, a potential deal right before the United States decided that they would like to annex uh, Texas. And Congress voted for that. There was a deal on the table uh, negotiated by London. And, and London is the big power at this time. London, London is the is the is the America. In the 1840s, London was going to give cover for Texas and say to Mexico, "Don't attack Texas, and we'll, you know, but you, and, and acknowledge that they're an independent republic, and we'll make sure they don't go with the United States."
3: Wait, wait, Bruce, are you saying that London was saying, "Don't mess with Texas"?
2: <laughs> right? <laughs> it was like it was like a third party. It was like, "Don't mess with
0: London. Don't mess with Texas through London." And there's nothing Andrew Jackson would love to do than mess with London, <laughs> which is kind of a big deal.
3: Andrew Jackson hated the British, hated because them. when he was a young boy in the Waxhaws of North Carolina, his... Yes, let's hear ah, it. Man, yeah. <laughs> a- a- annexed by Mecklenburg County. Yes.
4: <laughs>
3: so uh, when he was a young boy... What happened? I mean, his brothers were, were hauled off and killed by the his British. His brother was
0: killed. His mother died. Where, uh, she died of sickness as a nurse, uh, and he was a young boy who who had a scar on his face from being slashed by a British officer. He did not let grudges go. If there's one thing about Jackson, you should know, is he the man held grudges. So you know, <laughs> by the bit. time he finds out about this plot to annex Texas in the 1840s, I mean, basically everyone knows. If you just tell Andrew Jackson that the British might be getting involved here. Even though he's old and infirm and got two bullets in his body, which he had for most of his life, the man's going to get mad and fierce again and stir some things up. So in 1844, this all comes back around in this election of James uh, K. Polk. Of uh,
3: James K. Polk, yes. Uh, uh, a little man, a small man with big ambitions. When Polk... So, so essentially, John Tyler, who, who was uh, Polk's predecessor, uh, kind of wrapped up the whole Texas thing. They weren't annexed yet, but there was a congressional... Uh, offer on the table for Texas. It, it was kind of a foregone conclusion. But one thing that Polk wanted more than anything, when he came into office, he wanted California. And the United States had tried for years. We had offered Mexico millions of dollars to buy, to purchase California in the land that is today New Mexico and Arizona. But Mexico wasn't having it. So Polk immediately began to devise a possibly a plot to take, to seize California from Mexico. His plan was thus. He would send some guys down to that disputed border region territory between the New The two zip lines. uh, To to the zip lines between the Rio Grande and, uh, and they would start some trouble. They would start trouble with Mexico to entice them into a war before Texas was annexed. So the war starts... Texas begins the war with Mexico, we annex Texas, we take Texas, and we take her war.
2: Essentially. Yeah, essentially, we, we, we take Texas. It's interesting, too, to know that it, even, even when we annex Texas, it didn't necessarily even go the way that the Texas wanted. Texas, for instance, claimed New Mexico. Congress didn't give that to him, So it wasn't all you know, hunky-dory between the U.S. And, and Texas in a way. The entire Mexican war, which we're about to, to discuss was not necessarily conducted by Texans, it was conducted by Washington, you know, far away, by generals who were Whigs and didn't always support the the war. I think because we're we're all here and we're guests here, it's definitely important to see a lot of these views from the, the Mexican point of view as, as we're being hosted here and they don't look favorably generally in their history books on all of the events that we've discussed and all those are about to happen, which is going to end with the United States' invasion of Mexico. It's a very sad point of their history, and it's not something that they, they look at. And to be fair-minded about it, though, it's not as if the, there is no United States case either, that we were just grabbing things or being imperialist. We were very afraid. You have that Monroe Doctrine and that idea that foreign powers from Europe cannot be involved in America. We're always, and consistently throughout history, concerned that there would be no foreign involvement. That, for instance, you know, Andrew Jackson said, we already got a Kennedy on our north, I don't want a Kennedy on our south. <laughs> we did not want this country to, to turn into something that was either French, Russian, Spanish again, English again. And so that is the more positive side of Manifest Destiny and the events that are to happen and
0: what Polk does. Right, and the importance of slavery in all of this. There's a reason that Polk comes to the fore, because he begins to push the notion of slavery. And it's so important to understanding why this war that we're about to talk about is supported.
4: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances.
1: a town so rich with history that it provided the inspiration for its independent record label and management company. So great was the city's influence on Ramser that he continues to live and work in Concord today with a full-time staff located in both North Carolina and California. He and his team always put their clients' music first, work as hard as they can, and have fun along the way. Visit Ramser.com to learn more.
3: So here we are, months away from Texas annexation, annexation, and Polk has just taken office, and he sends two men down to Texas to start a little trouble. (laughs) One of them is Robert F. Stockton. Now, Bruce and I went to Stockton University.
2: Don't do this. Go Ospreys.
3: Go Ospreys. Uh, You don't hear a lot of that. That university's named, I want to get closer to everybody here.
2: That, Division three basketball. I, don't know if I, can get there. I just wanted to say, Bob, Division three basketball is the only thing we got, but we will ruin your lives in it. We, right. will, <laughs> we will run you down, That's Ospreys. Right. Thank you.
3: So, uh, so, so, Stockton, our college, Stockton University, was named after Richard Stockton, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence from New Jersey. Now, poor Dick Stockton had a tough go. He was the first founding father to be captured by the British. He spent the Revolutionary War on a prison ship off the coast of New York, pretty much.
2: He was captured, yeah, he was captured.
3: He, he, Yeah, he didn't. But his grandson was Robert F. Stockton. And he went to, at at the age of 13, he went to what is today Princeton uh, College, but at the time it was the College of New Jersey, uh, which now Trenton's kind of the college I man. It's kind of weird, but anyway. Uh,
2: no, I, I digress. Straight.
3: So, so uh, Stockton here. He's at 13. He's in college at Princeton. Uh, he leaves school. He joins the navy. He becomes. He fights in the War of 1812. He's rising through the ranks. Uh, he actually. He's he's, uh, viscerally anti-slavery, and he begins to to um, take down slave ships and arrest slave ships that are in the in the in, off the coast of Africa. And in fact, he helps negotiate the treaty that forms the country of Liberia. So Stockton's a rising star. He's offered the secretary of the navy position under John Tyler. He turns it down, but he was also a tech he was really into technology, right? So he pushes the navy to construct a steam propellered battleship of the time, a, a ship of the time, and it was the most technologically advanced ship we had in in our Navy. It had these two big guns, 250-pound guns. One was called Oregon. The other was called the Peacemaker. (laughs) And so at the time, this was a big deal. So this is during the the Tyler administration. So when they unveil this ship, they take a, a bunch of the cabinet members on a cruise of the Potomac in this ship. Was it the Potomac? Were they on The Princeton. The Princeton. The ship was called the Princeton, and they go out for a pleasure cruise on the Potomac, and they're showing off the guns. One of the guns explodes. It kills the Secretary of State, Abel P. Upshore, and the Secretary of the Navy, Thomas Walker Gilmer. There's an inquiry into why this happened. Stockton is absolved because he had a lot of political connections. He was a very wealthy man also. And uh, a couple years later... Polk's in office. He calls on Stockton, who's now a Commodore in the Navy, to go down to Galveston, Texas with a guy named Charles A. Wycliffe. Wycliffe was the postmaster general under Tyler. He was also a short-time governor of Kentucky, member of Congress, lieutenant g- governor of Kentucky. So these guys are kind of like the Point Dexter and Oliver North of this situation. <laughs> so they go down under false pretenses down to Texas to meet with a Texas... Texas militia leader named, by the name of Sherman and raise a 3,000-man army to instigate a war with Mexico.
2: And, uh, you know, it it doesn't work out because Texas does decide to be annexed uh, by the United States. It's a, it's a closer call than people think, as we referenced earlier. There's a chance that Texas could have remained uh, independent. Um, the president wanted it. The, the voters in the state didn't. So that that filibustering mission that you referenced with, with our uh, namesake of our college, Stockton, didn't happen. But what does happen is an election. And the election of 1844, which sets everything up and is the very reason there was a Mexican war, is between Henry Clay, a well-known compromiser in the Senate, Kentucky, and, and James K. Polk. And one of the things that happens in politics you're going to learn is that, you know, Everyone's saying when this guy James K. Polk gets nominated, they're like,
0: Who is he? He was a dark horse. Literally. Win? Literally one of the one of the, the slurs they had for for James K. Polk was who is James K. Polk?
2: <laughs> and That's Henry awesome. Henry Clay's a smart politician. He's like he tells his sons, so he's like, I'm done. I'm done here. This guy has no record to attack. I have a long record in the Senate. And, you know, hey, it was a close thing, the election of 1844. I know you didn't expect to talk about that on the beach, but what the heck? <laughs> uh, it was close, and it—it it, it, uh, James Polk loses his home state of Tennessee. The Whigs do very well in the election. But Henry Clay had this habit of, you know, he was a little bit, what do you call it, wishy-washy. Yeah. That's never happened since. I mean, he yeah. would say one thing in one state and <laughs> the other. So they ask him, what do you think about the annexation of Texas, which is probably going to set up a, a war with Mexico or another country? And he says, well... I should like to see it. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> Another thing is, you know, in New York, he's trying to get the Irish vote, so there's some flyers that go out that call him Henry O'Clay. You know, he wasn't Irish or anything like that. But in any case, what really splits the vote is that in New York, there's a Free Soil Liberty Party that takes votes away from Clay. Clay had was wishy-washy on the issue. Polk wins the election, and it's a close one. But as soon as he does. He makes it clear, before he's even in office, I want you to annex Texas. President Tyler does it in the last months of his office. So Polk comes in with Texas annexed in part of the United States and immediately order, orders Zachary Taylor, old rough and ready, over to this disputed area between the two zip lines. And again, the lower <laughs> one is the Nueces or Nutty River, and the top one is the Rio Grande. In between, which is, could be considered an act of war. That's disputed territory. The Mexican army, which is not small and and is well trained, well armed, and the fight that's going to happen and the war that's going to happen that we don't know no- enough about is a is a rough war. It is not a it's not a pushover by any means. It it seems that way reading it because it was fast. Uh, they send troops. There's interchanges between the two sides. Neither side negotiates at a high general level. Uh, They they use their second-in-commands. There's no agreement. The Mexicans are like, you need to leave. The Americans are like, this is U.S. property. They send a quartermaster out to go get some bacon for the troops. He's not seen again. Others are sent to find them. They're attacked. And we have our act of war. Polk goes to Congress. There's this insignificant little congress member from, well, he's not little, from Illinois named Abraham Lincoln, who says, I want you to tell me the spot that they get fired on. And is that really American soil where blood was shed? Because if it's not, then this is is just a war and things happen during war. And, you know,
0: you're in disputed territory.
2: Nobody paid any attention to him. His resolution didn't even didn't even uh, pass. I
0: don't want to say that sometimes people get whipped up and don't pay attention to facts, but it's a long American tradition. <laughs> a long American tradition. The, the war that happens is amazing, though, because when you look at it, the, the young officers in this war, it's the first generation coming out of West Point. Mm-hmm. And these guys, nobody's seen these guys fight before. Mm-hmm. So when they're out on the battlefield, the United States hasn't been in a major conflict since the War of 1812. And European countries sent observers to watch these wars. And no one's seen this American war machine go at it. And these guys are amazing. And the people who were fighting on the same side at this point uh, Ulysses S. Grant, Robert E. Lee, no. Winfield Scott mm-hmm. these guys are going to be trying to kill each other in another 13, 14 years. It's uh, Robert E.
2: Lee in this war is the person that finds the right secret route. Around where Winfield Scott troops can go and take Mexico City. Santa Ana had planned a ferocious resistance on what he thought was the only road available because Mexico City is surrounded by swamps. It's hard to get cannon in there. Robert E. Lee and his team of engineers find another way, so he plays a significant role in this war. You also have to keep in mind that... It is a, just a few thousand American troops. This is something like seven or eight thousand. Winfield Scott takes Mexico City. This is a nation of seven million people at the time. It's an achievement that will go in the history books. It's an achievement that will go in the history books. You obviously hear it in the Marine song, "The Halls of Montezuma." When we captured Mexico City, a significant. It might not be as well known in, in history textbooks now, but it's a significant thing that. that Military historians study his, his victory again and again because it was done in an amazing way. And he never really had control of every acre of the country. That's something that's not quite understood. But we got the main port of Veracuse and we got the, uh, and we got the capital of Mexico City. It's a very centralized country then and today. And so everything runs through Mexico City. You control the capital, you control the country. Now, Mexicans, it's important to state their view of this. And it's not good. This is not a series of events that they view favorably in their history.
0: Right. And eventually this war ends on February of 1848 with a treaty called the Treaty of Guadalupe-Hidalgo, which officially recognizes Texas is gone, and California, and all the area that's the American Southwest today. It amazes me, as a historian and as an American, that we know so little about this war. And so many people... Forget it. And it's—I go to California sometimes. My wife's from California, and it's amazing to me that I hear people out there say, "Uh, "These people, this is America. Why don't they speak English?" And I'm like, "Well, to be fair, sometimes people cross borders, but sometimes borders cross people. (laughs) And uh, don't expect they're going to get Rosetta Stone and learn the language. You know, if I woke up tomorrow and found you were living in China, you probably wouldn't speak Mandarin in about twelve months, would you? But it amazes me that people don't know it. Like, we're not—it's not hidden. One part of the land that we took is just called New Mexico. Like, where, where did you think it came from?
3: <laughs>
0: Old Mexico, you know? So it's, it's important to remember these things when we make decisions in the present. It's easy for us to forget these things. But if there were a war in which, you know, a third of our land was taken from us just 150, 160 years ago, we probably would remember that. And that probably would factor the way we felt about other people.
2: And now, it is an event that, that, that forgetting of the history that occurs in the United States still, I mean, it's taught in, in high schools, but it's... It's, it's in between the War of 1812 and the Civil War sometimes. Right. And we focus a lot on the Civil War and on our revolution. That does not occur in Mexican teaching of the events. This, right. uh, what they sh- truly consider an invasion is something that is well-known. And if you go to Mexico City today in Chapultepec uh, Castle, you're going to see a statue of the, the cadets, these young cadets that bravely defended their, uh, their republic from the american attack and it's a little disconcerting i remember going there and uh hey we got it we got it hey, hey. so, we many, species, a bird, fly so by many species the, uh, at this live for record. those in radio land
0: and and the thing the thing i think it's important to remember is this you know we're talking about a lot of things that that if you've never heard a version of history that acknowledges these things it's like well what are you saying that that, that the country that our country is bad well we can't change those things right we, we can't control the past of our country we can only be willing to accept and learn and and, and make decisions from here on out. And you won't make good decisions if you don't understand what happened before and it will seem that other people are making irrational decisions. But if you understand the past, you can learn and grow in a way that you wouldn't be able to if you just deny that you're ever ever capable of anything uh, questionable.
2: Bad and good are words that yeah. Thanks guys. Words that don't work well with history, bad and good, because there's so many different things to consider. Uh, it was probably important as a nation, as the United States, that we got California, that we, we, we had the ability to have a railroad from one end to the other, that we had the most powerful economy, that you can put a stamp on a on a letter and it goes to Oregon. You know, that we had that kind of nation. That that nation later would play a part in the world fighting. Fighting Nazi Germany and doing great things, and would we have been able to do it as a, as a nation that ended at the at the Mississippi? But it's also important to look at, you know, what expense that, the, that did these things come at, and how do other countries, how does the nation affected uh, deal it? I suspect that uh, what happened with the war that it's the war itself that was the, is the great injustice from the Mexican point of view. There were some negotiations underway about possibly treating for California, New Mexico, and certain lands along with a payment. Um, And, uh, you know, the the interesting thing that goes on with the the Mexican War is that Polk and many other war hawks in Congress probably wanted to take more territory than what we did. Yes, yes. He sends Nicholas Trist. Trist is a Whig. Like, Polk is this guy, he just, you know, if I agree with his politics, I would feel sorry, you know, I, you know, I would probably feel more sorry for him. He just can't catch a break. You know, he wants one of his party to become the generals. Well, he has problems with the Senate. Oh, the, the presidents always have problems with the Senate. What is it with these senators? You know, they won't let him get his generals. So he has to have a a, a wig as his key general, Zachary Taylor, who so
0: would follow him into the. In the White House. (laughs) Much to Polk's
2: chagrin. Polk Polk did not send
0: Zachary Taylor in to invade to get the big victory because he was worried that if he did that, Zachary Taylor would win the presidency in 1848. So he doesn't send Taylor because he's worried about that. The next president is Taylor. So it did not work out for Polk particularly well.
2: And, uh, you know, so the person he sends to treat is Nicholas Trist. He goes there and does his own thing. He doesn't listen to Polk's instructions. And they basically get a treaty that involves no no new land, not too much land, other than what some of the diplomatic uh, overtures might have, have obtained in, in any case. And it's almost like the war didn't need to be fought. But how how often does that happen in history?
3: Yeah. Well, so, so you talked about World, uh, World War II and, and the United States role, and Mexico played a role in World War II uh, on, on the side of the Allies as well. But why don't we go back to World War I right. and talk about U.S.-Mexico relations around that time?
2: Sure. either. Yeah. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if... Instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world. If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out what could go right wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh well, it gets a little it gets a little interesting uh with World War 1 and one of the things that that unfortunately this this country of Mexico is under the rule of a dictator from the period after our civil war basically until 1910, and that's a Diaz. Now, it didn't have to happen. One of the things to understand is right around the time that we had Lincoln, they had Benito Juarez, and if you fly into Mexico City, you'll fly into Benito Juarez Airport. And he, he, he was a great leader. He's an indigenous, he was a person with indigenous blood. And uh, to have that in, in 1860, and he also, in, in the 1860s, that was not a common thing in, in Mexico. There, there were generally uh, people that were leading the country were tracing their lineage right to colonial Spain. And so he was overthrown. Unfortunately, he trusted a general. How often does this one happen? He trusted Diaz as his general, and Diaz took the power and overthrew him. Then there, it, 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 he has a long period as a dictator in Mexico, and during which there's not a lot of rights, not a lot of political freedom. Of course, there's, there's business interests from the United States supporting him. They have a revolution between 1910 and 1920, essentially, which involves many assassinations of leaders, assassinations of presidents and vice presidents right in the palace, groups fighting all over Mexico. There's really not a stable country, especially from the American point of view, that they can treat with. And this happens as we start the run-up to World War I.
1: La Cosecha Coffee Roasters provides fresh roasted coffee grown in a sustainable manner where the farmer is given a fair price, which means the coffee goes straight from the harvest to your cup. The best part? You can get 10% off your next purchase by using the promo code RTN1010 at checkout. Visit LACOSECHACOFFEE.COM or follow the links at TheRoadToNell.com.
0: Mexico plays a factor in this, because have you, have you heard of the Zimmerman Telegram before? Have you heard of this? Are you familiar with this? It's kind of a part of people who want to get into the war. The British intercept this transmission that's from Germany, and Germany's like, hey, Mexico, if you guys invade the United States when you're done, we'll give you all that land back, right? That land that they took in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Sounds like a sweet deal. And the United States is like, gets this information and uses it at a very specific time to kind of push things over the, over, over the edge. But to, to really believe that's a threat is to completely forget that Mexico was literally in the middle of a revolution when that happened. Not exactly looking to be like, hey, you guys want to stop fighting this like seven year war? We've been fighting with each other and go attack America. Maybe we get Texas back. It's not, it's not a real thing. Yet it works as a propaganda tool. And I yep. think this is probably one of the biggest ways that Mexico actually plays a role in this war from, from America's perspective.
2: Well, Mexico's neutral to the extent that there was a, an intact Mexico government. I mean, they, they were part, there was a Zapata fighting in the, in the north. There was, there, was, there, was, there was all kinds of different armed groups uh, in the country. is very much uh, unfortunate. Uh, it might be the way you, you, you might view it, the way we would view like a Syria situation today where there's all these different armed groups sometimes fighting each other, sometimes in strange coalitions. And United States policy, Woodrow Wilson comes into office, and there's border raids into the north because, uh, you know, Z- Zavada's not happy with, what's, with our policies. We send Pershing into Mexico. The Carranza government, they're not exactly happy with this. When the Zimmerman telegram is discovered, Carranza's government looked into that like, hey, should we attack borders in U.S. and get them angry and come down like a ton of bricks on us? So maybe we can get protection from Germany that's bogged down in a war? No. They look at it about that much. And then, of course, when the United States Senate gets a hold of Zimmerman, I think it it increases the call for war in the United States. So Mexico, in effect, plays a role in the United States' entry into World War I, which was not always a given thing.
0: Right. And, uh, you know, we're in that war for like a year and a half. It gets over. Now, so Mexico doesn't play that particularly large of a role there. And sometimes when we think about World War II in particular, we don't think about Mexico playing a large mm. role. Mm. But this obscures something, an important fact about World War II. We sent off and mobilized millions of Americans to go fight this war and to join the military. And we still got to grow food. And so in the years of World War II, we actually invite in uh, immigrants from Mexico to come grow the food, to keep, our, to keep our soldiers fighting, to feed our people at home. And these folks come over and they grow the food and they provide the resources that our country needs to go. And, you know, sometimes when we think about great accomplishments in, in, in the war and we, we think about the soldiers, you know, sometimes we forget about the families back home that, that are dealing with the, the stresses of having loved ones abroad. And we also forget that a war effort takes the people that are growing our food and making our clothes. Mm-hmm. And when you see the massive effort that, that, that Mexican citizens came by coming to the United States, helping us win, you can't imagine that that's not a significant part, portion of that. And, and, and we, we owe it to, to thank them and have gratitude for, for that contribution they made. Whenever, you know, Nazis, we got rid of Nazis. I, I think we can all
3: applaud for that. We should applaud getting rid of, we should applaud getting rid of Nazis. Yeah, can we yeah. do that? Of, I keep
0: forgetting we, that some people are like, I don't know. Are uh, we still there? Are we still there?
2: I, I think that supply is so important in war. And if you look at the what's said again and again about World War II and why America won, it was our economy. Uh, you know, you look at the revolution, one of the reasons the British lost – Why they had to give up the colonies, they could not supply that war effort. Supply is a key factor. It's not just a minor one. And to the extent those brazeros helped, that should be saluted. There was also more direct involvement even. Uh, The country of Mexico, which is, as as you know, officially – by the way, we're in the United States. We're in the United States of Mexico, right? We should never forget that. You're in Quintana Roo State, and it's, it's one of many states. The United States of Mexico declared war on Germany during World War II. It was for a number of reasons. Uh, Germany was over here interfering in their politics, and the Cardenas government in the in the 30s and 40s did not like that. Uh, they were prop- They were doing propaganda. They were trying to do regime change here. They were trying to have a a, a poor influence. Mexico's allied with the Soviet Union at the time, as we would be later uh, during this period, and so. When Germany attacked the Soviet Union, Mexico declared war on Germany. They kicked all German agents out. They, pro- they protected their territory, which is very important if you look at World War II from being attacked by the Japanese or the Germans. It never could be a launching pad for an attack of the United States, which kept us free to go in either direction, Atlantic and Pacific. But they did more. They did something else. There is, an, and if you remember anything about uh, your visit here, remember this. The Azteca Eagles Squadron, Mexico set its air force to go and fight the Japanese. And it, it was its first international army foray, and it was a squadron that, that helped in the Pacific. So they contributed indirectly and directly to World War II. And that's a, something we should always keep in mind as debates over policy occur.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think a lot of what we we just try to establish, especially in the early part of the show, with those statistics, is that we're dependent on one another. Our nations are we're very dependent on each other. We kind of need each other. If you think that Mexicans are third largest trading partner, you know, it's it's like it we like losing Canada. I mean, like we, we need to. It is that kind of like uh, that hemispheric. Uh, uh, unity. There are neighbors,
2: and I think that if if a policy. It, you know, we can have all the debates we want. If it's been said that maybe, oh, you've been the policies have favored Mexico too much, or you allowed things to slide too much, and I hear that argument, and and everything's a reasonable point of debate if debates are made in reasonable fashion. But we should also consider they're our neighbor, and sometimes I think unfortunately we don't. I, w- I was talking about earlier how. Sometimes we think in, in America about Italian heritage and, and our proud Irish heritage and my family's got Swede blood and I can I can be out there with no sweater on and with ten or fifteen degrees, five degrees and I'm putting a sweater on. But we're all proud of our different heritage is and, and not to think of, of Mexico sometimes as a nationality, as a heritage. And being Mexican American, people are very proud of that. And you know, and that's something that I think is very yeah, important. Hold on. In in some states, like I think in Texas it's something that's better known. My wife is from Texas, she'd be the first to say it. We own this cabinet that's made of Mexican pine. It's beautiful and that's a that's a positive where she comes from in Texas. Sometimes where I live in New Jersey, if you say something's Mexican, it's unfortunately there's this stereotype that goes with it. We gotta fight those stereotypes. It's a proud country, people are from it, and they're our neighbors. Now you can look at policy, uh, nation has to consider its borders a nation has to consider its integrity its security, all of these things go all the way back to what we talked about earlier and some of Polk's concerns that we and Andrew Jackson's concern that we didn't have a nation that would subvert us that's important, but let's not overdo it either.
3: Something you were talking about earlier Bruce, you were saying the way Mexican is perceived in the rest of the world besides the United States talking about like Film production that goes to the Latin world and to uh, Spain comes out of Mexico City.
2: That's right, uh, Univision and uh, the the other networks. Mexico City is like their Hollywood. I mean, a lot of the uh, key soap operas and and telenovas and and the programs are produced there that are watched in the in the Spanish language world. It's a it's almost laughable sometimes the the way that that Mexico is viewed in the United States when it is a powerful nation, according that it has a huge land mass. It occupies an important bridge between the North America and South America. Trades with everyone, and it it, it provides labor and resources to us. Your statistic about the stock market and and Mexican companies and investors injecting money in our stock market was actually surprising to me. But, but it's, it just adds to that, that I think that it's, it's – I think in all of this discussion where we've had problems is when we stop seeing Mexico as a nation and as something else. And, and when you see it as something else, then, then we're engaging in bad policy.
0: And, and the brilliant thing about traveling is this, and this goes for anything. It's way easier to think about a place as a set of borders or a stereotype when you haven't been there. Uh, you guys have walked around and you've met Mexican people. And you're like, you're not going to fall for it. And that's, I mean, like, you've got to travel. You've got to go see the world. And, and that's the great thing. I tell my students, go. I tell them, go travel the world. And I tell them, go, you can go, I can go anywhere. And, and they're like, you know, I don't have enough money. I'm like, well, if you don't have enough money for an airplane ticket, I'll bet you got a car. If you've got a car, you can sell it and buy an airplane ticket you know it's, it's, it's always there if you want it so anyway. we we
3: really wanted to take questions questions I, I didn't know it was going to be like this so, just throw it does you anybody sh- have a question they can shout alright
0: that's good well we can handle this we can you handle it. you can come that. down the zip that's line good. with like a banner like yeah. they have on the planes on the beach yeah
3: what's that good that's a great question how the gold rush relate to the US Mexican relationship
0: well it- thank you it sent a lot of people out to what was at that time technically Mexico to go looking for gold. Uh, that'll populate a region, which makes it way easier to rise up once you send the signal, which was a big part of it, because you remember like the, you know, the gold rush of 1849. People have been it, it, moving into the region before that. It was not the United States at that point.
2: Right. It. it uh, California gets interesting because California has kind of three phases or more. Uh, you have the phase where it's. Uh, the area that we know as San Francisco was Alto California, a province, a state of, of Mexico, and uh, that is the area where the, the gold was discovered. But had gold been discovered earlier, I suspect Mexico might have been a lot more forceful about reinforcing that territory. The, the find and the ensuing gold rush does happen after we're pretty successful in the in the war. And so I don't think there is there is much that could be done about it. But I think it, it certainly adds to the fact that gold is later discovered there certainly adds to the fact that, uh, that uh, you know, the loss that was felt in, in that war and the, the, the impression of that war as theft as opposed to just a, a little dispute between two countries.
0: And an interesting side note, which a lot of people don't know, is that before the United States got interested in that area... The biggest rival to that territory for Mexico was Russia, because Russia had come across sure. Siberia down through Alaska, and actually in 1812 established a port, which is about two hours north of uh, San Francisco called Fort Ross in 1812. It, it, it was, they were looking for furs, so they didn't settle. My favorite story about that is that a couple years ago, once the whole Ukraine crisis was coming up, in negotiations, a member of the Russian Duma, their parliament, stood up and proclaimed that that part of California still belonged to Russia and I laughed not only because that's kind of an old claim but because secondly let them go try to take it have you guys been in northern California that's where the doomsday preppers are send them in there they won't make it out good luck you'll think you've got it dude will pop out of a refrigerator with a machine gun and that'll be all over so you know good luck hey thanks for for being here and
3: listening to us and uh just let, letting us do this thank you Thank you, guys. A lot. Thank you very much. Hope you guys enjoy the rest of the weekend. We really appreciate it. Have a good
0: one. Thanks for having us. Hey, guys. If you're enjoying The Road to Now, then be sure to check out Nashville Public Radio's newest podcast, The Promise. They've spent the last year reporting from the city's largest public housing complex, getting to know the people who live there, the officers who police the neighborhood and the city officials who want to give it the overhaul of a lifetime. It's a dramatic story told in six parts, and the first episode includes a great overview of the history of public housing in the U.S. So check out The Promise for free on Apple Podcasts or at WPLN.org. Thank you for listening to The Road to Now live at the Ava Brothers at the Beach. We'd like to thank Bruce Carlson of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics for making the trip to join us in Riviera Maya. And we'd also like to thank all of you who came up and said hello during the festival. And we just really, really appreciate it and had a great time getting to see you all. thanks. The Road to Now was hosted by Bob Crawford and Dr. Benjamin Sawyer. It's produced by Bob Crawford, Ben Sawyer, and Ian Scott. Our intern is Megan Summers. Today's music is by Paul DeFigley. We'd like to say a special thanks, as always, to our supporters on Patreon with a special shout-out to our Washingtonians, Tanya Marsh, Mary Hawking, Paul Ayler. Tim and Caitlin Wells, Christopher Willis, Peggy Donica, Fig White, and Jeff LeCain. We'd also like to thank our newest Lincoln Tier member, Nicholas Greenfield. As always, we thank you for what you do on Patreon. And if you want to get some new episodes, check us out, patreon.com slash Now. If you like what you're hearing, please take a minute and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get The Road to Now. It only takes a second and does a lot to help us spread the word. For Bob Crawford, this is Dr. Benjamin Sawyer. Take care.